Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Little Brown School and Library Podcast. I'm Victoria Stapleton, Director of School and Library Marketing here at Little Brown Books for Young Readers. I'm pleased to welcome you to this episode because our guest today is Amy Polonsky. She has written some really lovely books, including Gracefully Grayson, Spin With Me, and Threads. Her new book with LBYR is World Made of Glass. And let me just say, I need to have that moment of... Yes, and this is the one. Uh, this book has received starred reviews from Kirkus, Publishers Weekly, School Library Connection, and the brightest star in all the firmaments and constellations, Hornbook. So that's one, two, three, four. That's pretty good. Usually, uh, I don't super love historical fiction. We lived it the first time. Do we really need to live through it again? This is something I ask myself when I see 90s fashion. But World Made of Glass is really actually quite converting me to the joys and pleasures of historical fiction as a way to revisit our emotions and lives. World Made of Glass features Iris, who is a young lady with a lot of things on her mind. The book is set in 1987 when the federal government has just recently approved AZT. For all of those out there who only know PrEP, AZT was before that, and it was one of the first drugs that was used and approved to treat AIDS. Now, unfortunately for Iris, this is not something that's going to help her family because her father is already dying. Iris is dealing with a lot of grief and a lot of uncertainty about her family, her place in the world, who she is in school, dealing with her father's relationship with JR, his boyfriend, dealing with her mother's reaction to that, her own reaction. There's a lot going on here, but Amy's deft touch, her beautiful language, and the way that she has set up her exploration of this story really, I think, is moving and delightful. I, I know it's weird to say delightful, but I think as you read this book, even with its heavy themes, you will find delights in this book because even in our most uncertain and traumatic moments, there can be moments of enjoyment and pleasure and hopefulness and love, even joy. And I think Amy has really, in this novel, captured all of those complex feelings. Uh, I think partly because Amy is a well-experienced writer, but also she is a middle grade teacher. Teachers represent. So we're excited to have her with us today. Hi, Amy. Hi, how are you? I am, well, I'm so excited for this conversation today. Uh, as I said, this is a really moving book. And I think when we read it as we were acquiring the book, I just was like, I don't know. I lived the 80s the first time, but I was intrigued by this book because it revisited a time that was so, when I was a young person, slightly older than Iris, so many feelings and so many thoughts, the politics and the energy and the anxiety around these things. Um, coming to that historical fiction, what made you decide to excavate this period or explore this period? First off, I'm not sure that the idea for the book would have come to me if not for experiencing the COVID pandemic. So it hit me very early on um, in the earliest days of COVID that, of course, this actually wasn't the first pandemic that I had lived through. I had been in middle school when I first had started to hear about HIV and AIDS. I'm exactly Iris's age, so I was also 12 in 1987. And the realization that I had lived through that, through uh, another pandemic that I didn't think of all that often, you know, once it became 2020, was what immediately landed me in the late 80s writing this novel. So I guess the purpose in communicating the story that took place in 1987 was kind of twofold. 
I wanted to show the late eight, the late 1980s and the United States' response to HIV and AIDS because it's a story of discrimination and activism that in some ways, at least, we can look back on and we can see a beginning, a middle, and an end in many ways to the story. We can see a story arc. And what brings us to a, a satisfying ending in that story arc is advocacy. So that's something that personally, advocacy is something that personally is super important to me. And I love the idea of focusing on ACT UP, which was is a grassroots advocacy group that had huge success in combating the forces that were responsible for the fact that HIV and AIDS were being largely ignored. So advocacy is what brings Iris out of her darkness and despair and rage of her experience of losing her dad to AIDS and learning about all the discrimination that contributed to his death. But the other side of it, the other thing that I wanted to communicate to readers through writing a book that's historical fiction is how, in a sense, a lot has changed, but a lot also really remains the same. And that's where the advocacy that I highlighted in World Made of Glass really comes into play. So the need to pay attention, to speak up, to act up is very, very strong today. And the parallels that can be drawn between discrimination against LGBTQ people today, trans kids in particular, and discrimination against gay men in the late 80s are really staggering. Um, that both then and now we have life and death situations. And then and now we have um, a situation where the general mainstream public isn't actually as aware as it should be about what's going on. And both then and now we have some people who are and were truly hateful and acting out of hatred towards the LGBTQ community. But then during both eras, we have a lot of people who are on the sidelines who don't, who just don't quite care enough to help. And I wanted to highlight the fact, that fact in the book that it's always important to care. And it sounds simple, but it's actually everything. People have to care about their about the world. They have to care about what's happening with, with, with people who aren't super closely related to them. And that's a message that I'm hoping I can pass on to kids through this book. So you know, the time period was important because it provided the framework for a good story, but it's also extremely relevant and hopefully will be inspirational to potential advocates and allies today. I love your discussion of this. I mean, um, I will see a lot of advertising for things like Victarvi and other pharmaceuticals. I don't know that many people, or especially kids who are looking at those advertisements or being exposed to that, know exactly what that is about. Because if you watch one of those ads, you actually don't know what that drug is meant to treat. And this book takes us back to a time when AIDS and HIV were so very frightening and really so relentless in thinking about the communities that were devastated. Uh, communities that were uh, the queer communities, gays, lesbians, trans people, but also people who were using intravenous drugs and the people who were connected to them. I don't think it's really well known just the many reverberations through communities that the, this disease would have. And the fear and the rage that were present in that uh, period of time that we think it's all solved now because we have these advertisements for things we, we don't even really think about anymore. And yet, by your highlighting that period of time, we can more easily connect it to what's going now with the rage, fear, demonization of, of again, LGBTQ and 
and uh, communities of color, particularly trans people. There's just some things, as you said, that stay the same. Uh, I love that you mentioned ACT UP because what is the slogan of ACT UP? Silence equals death. Yes, and, indeed. And it's and it's the same thing now. And it's the same thing now. And you used to see those pins with the with black with the triangle, silence equals death. And a lot of people were very, were almost as frightened, as frightened of uh, ACT UP as they were of other things because those advocates were just really not settling for quiet, uh, passive support that really did not have t- materially affect their lives. And I think we're probably in a situation where maybe Iris's daughter is having to step up and think about these things. Exactly. Yeah. ACT UP was committed to nonviolent protests, but they were also very committed to in-your-face protests, the type of protests that you couldn't ignore, that sort of they, they worked very hard to alert the media to the protests that were coming down the pipeline just because that was the that was the whole point to be loud in your face to make people notice them because they were furious because they were being ignored and they were dying and it was so unfair and as you said sadly that you know that's still a part of our lives today when it comes to marginalized people, especially in the LGBTQ community. I think at the time that we're recording this, um, we are the first week of February 2023. In the So far this year, there have been 200, over 250 laws initiated or filed, bills filed in legislatures around the country that uh, criminalize queer people and trans people. Uh, so, you know, really the, the amount of effort being put into this. Um, I don't want to think about the book necessarily in terms of politics because Iris is a very human character and we'll talk a little bit more about voice <laughs> at the end of the podcast before we get through this. But trying to really think about your story and the, the historical fiction of it, of the situation and the pungency, but also balancing her within that and the literary aspect of that. Did you find that difficult? Did you have to do a lot of revision um, on it? <laughs> you know, yes and yes and no. I felt obvious. You know, writing is always difficult, so I don't want to say like no that it was easy. It's never easy. Mm-hmm. Um, I found I found it not not the most challenging part to stay grounded in Iris's character, and um, a lot of that is just because she and I actually have quite a lot in common. <laughs> but um, that was. That wasn't, it wasn't too hard for me to stay in her shoes, but to put her through what I put her through certainly was very hard. And, um, you know, a a lot of the reason why it was hard is because so much of that is very personal. When I um, think about how this reverberates in my own life today in terms of my role as an advocate and an ally to, um, to a very close family member who's trans and by association to, um, as a, advocate and ally for trans kids in general, it was certainly hard to sort of live that in my own real life and also put Iris through something so similar in what I was writing. I kind of dealt with it on both fronts, so to speak. Um, So that was hard. I appreciate the difficulty of it because one of the things I was thinking about um, in preparation for this podcast is, you know, there's actually literature and even literature for kids published and written contemporaneously in the 80s and 90s that dealt with these issues. Not a huge amount, but it was there. So one of the things that we could do if we wanted to teach this era or look at children's books uh, that dealing with these issues, look at those, would be to look at those books that was produced at that time. And yet, that is not what you did. You wrote a whole new thing. (laughs) 
Can you talk a little bit about why we might not, as an educator, you might not want to simply revisit those books that were produced contemporaneously from the 80s and 90s, why we should look to newer literature about this to present um, this time period and to work through these emotions and these themes? First off, um, I don't. there weren't many novels back then um, in, written in the 80s or 90s, certainly not targeted um, towards middle grade readers. The landscape of middle grade literature was so much narrower. Um, and the other thing is that there was so much more overt bias that was sort of socially acceptable back then, you know, not to say that that's gone today, um, but it certainly was was much more in your face and much more socially acceptable, unfortunately. So um, I don't know that a story like this would have necessarily been presented in in any way in a positive light if it was written in the 80s. You know, I mean, it might have tried to, but I can't imagine that it it would have fully succeeded. So I guess, you know, as writers and people, we always have to fight against stereotypes. Um, you know, I think we all sort of marinate in them from the time we're born. Um, but that's that the fact that we have to actively um, work against that is so much more part of the conversation now than it ever used to be. So I think we can do a better job of that now um, if we put in the effort to do so. So, yeah, I mean, I can't I can't think of a book for middle school um, that could have been written in the 80s that could have included like a very empathic perspective on HIV and AIDS and queerness. I think that we as a society just weren't there um, as a, and certainly some people were, but um, society wide, we certainly weren't that we're closer now, but we're still not, we're still not all the way there. So I think that these topics would have been considered too much taboo um, in the, in the eighties and nineties. So, you know, of course the unfortunate result of that was that kids didn't see their stories reflected in books. I think that's very true, and I, as I was reading this also, I, again, sorry kids, I was slightly older than Amy, but, uh, old, you know, not that much older. Yeah, okay, fine, that much older. Um, but even thinking about terminology that would be used uh, in the 80s versus today, this, the, word is, the words are present, but the meaning is totally different, even a word like queer, which I was taught in my youth, don't ever say that word, <laughs> ever. And yet now that is a word that's been reclaimed and empowered in a number of ways. There's a certain other terms. I am not a member of that community. I will not be using that word. Uh, that are also been reclaimed and looking at those attitudes. And so I imagine it was thinking about the historical fiction being true to the issues of the historical fiction, but doing it in a way that pays homage to the need of the reader today to access the information and the emotions in a way that's responsible to where they are living today. Does that sure. make sense? Yeah, I mean, definitely. Iris hears slurs, um, and I, I don't tiptoe around that in the book. I mean, it's there, but it's the way that the book is written is such that this is obviously hurtful and harmful to Iris. It's not in any way an acceptable way of speaking about um, you know, the gay men in her life. So it's the, the angle is different than it would have been if it was written in a time when actually speaking negatively towards gay men would have been more sort of mainstream or acceptable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess all of this is leading up to the dreaded, when I say dreaded, because every time I talk to an author about this, they're like, eh, voice. 
And I'm like, okay, yes, we do have to talk to, about voice. Although, really, voice is just shorthand for point of view and for character. <laughs> and I just love Iris. I mean, this is this is a spiky character, <laughs> at least in my, in my reading of it. Maybe I was reading a little too much of my younger self into this character. Yes, children out there, I was a spiky teen and preteen as well as a spiky adult. Okay. Admit it, I do. But I really related to Iris and her confusion about these matters. And just thinking, you know, completely aside from the politics of it, you know, middle grade characters, when we're middle grade readers or younger readers, we often identify so much with that main character. And we can think of them as friends almost or people that are our peers. What was important to you coming to this in the middle grade space as opposed to the YA space where it was important for you to have your younger readers at really relate to Iris, but yet be authentic to her. How? What was the process of creating her character aside from, well, not necessarily, I don't think you can super separate it, but you know what I'm getting at. It's not the setting, it's the character. <laughs> so I get it. I get it. So it's, it's actually interesting to hear you say that a lot of authors don't like to talk about character and voice. I am the opposite. I don't like to talk about lot because it's much harder for me. I feel like characters I can do, um, you know, every couple of years, a character just sort of comes to me almost fully formed. And I'm, I'm like, okay, I've got the basis now for a story. That's what comes to me first. The plot is what I struggle with. The fact that something has to happen to the characters, that's what's hard for me. So I like talking about voice and character. Um, Creating Iris wasn't that hard for me. Um, like I mentioned before, she and I have a lot in common. We have a lot more in common, actually, than any other character I've written in any of my other books. So, um, to be honest, it was kind of, it was kind of just. Um, I don't want to say easy, but it was not. It wasn't. It, nothing felt forced about writing Iris's character. So. Um, you know, we're, we're very similar. We're similar in our emotions and in our advocacy. Um, so as Iris becomes more and more aware of the world around her, following her dad's death from AIDS, she realizes how just infuriatingly unfair it is that someone that she loved so incredibly much was so discriminated against because he was gay. And she learns that the reason that the reason that the government and pharmaceutical companies didn't care enough about HIV and AIDS was because it was impacting primarily marginalized people. And if that wasn't the case, then the drug companies and the governments would have been more on it. The path from the first cases of HIV in the United States to a pharmaceutical solution would have been so much shorter. So Iris is just, she's so, so mad about this. Um, she's just completely filled with rage. And this was super easy for me to capture and write because it's such a direct parallel to me and my role as an ally to this close family member who's trans. Um, and I guess the rage that Iris feels because, and the rage is sort of, it's at everything, but a lot of it is because most people just don't care enough. It's the same exact rage that I feel because most people just don't care enough. And what, calms her is finding her community of people who do care enough and who are equally impacted. And for me, it's the, that's sort of the same thing. So I guess that Iris goes on this journey throughout the book where she realizes that in order to be a good ally, she has to 
tame her rage and make it more palatable in order to bring other people on board. And I think that I've gone through and am sort of consistently going through that same journey. So I guess also in the most basic sense, Iris also has an easier time with rage than with sadness. And that's Mm. me also because sadness is, you know, it's, it's harder than rage. I think in my mind, for me, it's easier to be furious than it is to be super sad about something. I guess because rage seems more like active, a more active right. emotion. You I can guess. do something with it to make it go dissipate a little bit. Turn into an activist, mm-hmm. you know, really uh, fight against the system, etc. Uh, what do you hope your young readers take away from meeting Iris? How do they how do you hope she sits with them later after they've after hope- they left the book's pages? Yeah, I mean, I hope that they find her real and and sort of inspirational and that she's able to take this intense anger that is present because of something that's just so unjust um, in her world. And she's able to do something with it. You know, towards the end of the book, she figures out a way to manage her or to, to a way to channel her anger into something that's going to help her peers um, to move forward. So I hope that young readers, first of all, learn to look at their world in the way that Iris does and notice things that are unfair. I mean, I think that that's sort of, when I think of my job as a teacher, that's sort of one of the most basic skills that I want to pass along to my kids to be critical thinkers, look around you, what's not right, what's immoral, and then what can you do about it in a way that is, you know, nonviolence um, and thoughtful and is going to bring attention to the unfairness or the um, inequity of something. And so I hope that that young readers will be inspired by that. And, you know, I don't I want the, I want people I want kids to not feel helpless, um, which is hard. You know, there are a lot of things in today's world that can make anybody feel totally helpless. But I think if you find your community um, of like minded advocates, you can you can make a change. Um, you know, you have to be really patient sometimes. And that's frustrating, but but it can happen. And I want kids to realize that um, to realize that they're not powerless, even though the world around them is very big. Um, and they might just be one one little 12 or 13 year old, they still can do something to make the world better. Yes. I, th- I think that's a really great way to end this conversation. It's about empowering and it's about not being, being silent or passive about this, even if you are angry, even if you are sad, even if you have those huge emotions. It is about turning that into something really good that maybe when this is a pe- this book is a tidy number of years old, somebody else will write some historical fiction set in the year 2023 and somebody reading World Made of Glass and being impacted by it and the chain of reading goes on. Uh, well, Amy, thanks so much for joining us today on the Little Brown School and Library podcast. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. It's been great. Readers out there in the virtual universe, World Made of Glass by Amy Polonsky should be on your shelf now. If it is not on your shelf, special treat for you. Coming up is a sample from the audiobook. We hope that you enjoyed the sample, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Dad is dying. I pushed through the after-school crowd in the hallway, repeating the sentence to myself. Dad is 
dying. Dad is dying. With each word, I planted one of my hot pink converse into the center of a scuffed floor tile. No stepping on cracks. I didn't used to be the superstitious type, but these days, new worries popped into my mind constantly. Maybe repeating the thought over and over again would help me to understand it. Dad is dying. And just this morning, Mom said it wouldn't be long now. Dad is dying. The words pounded through my mind on loop as I passed the lunchroom and nurse's office. Rounding the corner by the gym, I almost ran into Miss Staffio. Startled, she hopped to the side to avoid me. Iris, she exclaimed. I was probably imagining it, but she seemed disgusted, as if nearly bumping into me could contaminate her. Then she patted her already neat bun. Pay attention to where you're going, please. She forced a smile and adjusted the teacher's edition of our science textbook under her arm. I was just on my way to make some photocopies, but I was hoping to see you. I wanted to ask you something. I took one more step to complete my thought, dying, before responding, Kay, I said. She looked at me strangely, and for a second, I thought I saw a flicker of something different in her eyes. Sympathy? But no, it couldn't be. Nobody, not even my best friends, knew that Dad was sick. You're off to philanthropy club, I presume? Yeah, I answered. Wonderful. The gerbil's cage really could use a cleaning. Will you pass that along to the group? I mean, unless you have something more philanthropic on the agenda. I couldn't tell if she was being sarcastic. Everyone knew that philanthropy club was the after-school activity you joined if your parents insisted that you get involved and... You had nothing better to do. Miss Staffio smoothed her hair again and adjusted the already perfect collar of her white blouse. Everything about her was so judgmental. And even though I'd gotten really good at not caring what people thought about me and my family, I wondered what was going through her mind. That iris, I imagined her thinking in her snooty tone. She looks so disheveled. Someone ought to take her in for a bangs trim. Her hair is dangling into her eyes. And on the topic of her eyes, why are they so droopy and bloodshot? It's like she hasn't slept in ages. Must be that odd family of hers. Must be because her dad is, you know, gay. In my mind, she'd whisper the last word, gay, because it was so unthinkable.